My name is Hanson Oak, and I'd like to tell you my story. I often lament about how humanity has lost our connection to nature, that we've closed the door on the part of ourselves that's intertwined with the wilds of the world. And sadly, our welcome to that world has been revoked. Still, there are times when rekindling their relationship is necessary, and I've spent a great deal of my life doing just that. I'd like to think I'm invited as close to that other side as anyone could be, but never fully allowed inside is the difference between window shopping and browsing the interior, that invisible barrier that will always keep me at just arm's length. Not long ago, I had to push it further to communicate in a way that's alien to us, by speaking with the forest itself. Now, if you don't believe the forest, the wilderness has a voice beyond the Lorax, allow me to prove otherwise. I was on the trail of a Ravinia, a wonderfully odd creature that lives in the unbroken forest between the US and Canada and it is as curious as a platypus. It is the branch of evolution that briefly connected this and that before coming lost, probably cut off by choice. It is incredibly solitary and slow to breed, often only providing its population with one offspring per 20 years. The Ravinia exists to us as a passing breeze, a shadow inside a shadow, that footstep in the distance of a rarely traveled path. It stands seven feet tall, its fur varies from brown to gray, with claws like cutlery and teeth that snap shut like grinding gears. It has a mouth that could easily consume a human head in one go, and eyes like glimmering stars in a sunken skull. It is a beautifully evolved predator that almost never gets the taste of the people it isolates itself from. Well, almost. But it does happen. One day I found myself standing on that imaginary border between the US and Canada. I'd come through the Lost River Falls in Minnesota. Not far behind me was a town who'd woken up a few days before to find a few of its residents pulled apart. Arms were ripped from the sockets, legs pulled out of place, the torso and head going their separate ways not by choice but by force. The organs were missing, torn from their rightful locations with the haste of an animal, not skill like a surgeon. Seven people in all, though when that many bodies are broken out into their parts, it certainly seems like a lot more. While my first instinct wasn't a Ravinia, the idea came into focus as I examined the corpses with the detective who had called me to gain my insight on the matter. I arrived two days later to find the bodies had been pieced together inside a cold examination room. I'm never sure which way my stomach or emotions will go when confronted with death. But on that day, they both went south. The carnage and visceral reaction to seeing my own kind torn apart was just too much. One person didn't do this, Mr. Oak, the detective said repeatedly. A person couldn't have done this, and I had to agree. No person had the strength to tear limbs from their proper place, and no marks from a blade were present. Then he showed me something he hadn't shown anyone else. It was security footage of a traffic camera. It was not focused on the scene of the murders, but a few blocks away. At first, it was only cars starting and stopping at the flow of traffic lights. Then, when no cars were present, a flash, a, a blur, as if a paintbrush had been dragged across the screen for only a few frames, and then it was gone. We watched it again, and again, and again. It was so fast, a bolt of black lightning. Then, when pausing by chance on just one frame, I could make out the shadow of the blur, and my heart almost stopped. 
I thanked him for his time and his help and told him I'd do what I could and immediately call my wife back home to go to my library, find a specific book, turn to a specific page, and send me a picture of it on my phone. When I received it, my fears were confirmed. I didn't call the detective back even though I promised I would. I try to involve as few people as necessary in my work. I've seen enough of them mauled, cut open, ripped apart, ground to paste, torn to ribbons, and reduced to puddles to fill my nightmares for the rest of my life without voluntarily adding to it. However, there are many times that I do need help. This is when I ask the others, the spirits and energies that surround us that so few really know about. When I returned to the line dividing the fields from the forest, I thought to knock on the leading oak tree, but thought better of it. Not long ago, maybe a generation, well, a human generation, one could give a gentle rap against a tree like this and find the fae quick to emerge and offer help to the traveler, thinking of heading into the deep wood. To knock on wood is to ask for help warding off dismal fates. And the fae were the ones who those who knocked were looking for. But the fae were not as interested in helping humans as they once were, having long ago retreated further into the forest and ignoring most knocks. But even those random knocks have stopped almost altogether as we, well, most of us, have forgotten to why it was done in the first place or ever done at all. There is another way to communicate with the forest, but it comes with many, many more risks. But I didn't have many options. I could not track the Ravinia. It was far too fast and left no tracks to trace. I walked to the woods, deep enough to be surrounded by this place and covered by the canopy above, but still shallow enough to run if I needed to. I look around until I found what I was looking for, a fallen tree covered with mushroom blooms. The type of mushroom doesn't matter much, that one was yellow with red gills if I recall, as the mycelium, the webbed growth of the actual organism, is what I was really after. I moved around the log, traced the mycelium from the mushroom to the earth beneath the leaves and back past the trees, oaks as a matter of fact, to a clearing large enough to lay in. I gently pushed the leaves aside and pulled up the fragile white organism that made up the fungus proper. It was large, healthy, hardy, obviously old, and I knew it had a story to tell me. I removed my jacket and shirt, my shoes and pants, all but my underwear, as one has to retain some modesty, and carefully laid down and covered myself over with the mycelium. I looked up at the canopy one more time, the leaves rustling, shivered in the breeze, and I felt their chill run through me as well. I closed my eyes, my skin registering the sticky, uh, slightly moist membrane that stretched over me. I took a breath, pushed my consciousness deeper and deeper until I no longer felt the dirt on my back with the worms, ants, and other insects moving about. I pushed it deeper until the roots of the mycelium poking softly at my flesh ceased to tickle. I pushed my consciousness away until I made room for another to come inside, but only just. I did not want to evict myself completely, because I'd certainly find the door locked behind me when I tried to get back in. I felt the web of mycelium become tighter, but forced myself to relax. Its grip came in waves, like a blood pressure cuff inflating, making it hard to breathe. My heartbeat echoed into my temples and fingertips. Still, I kept my distance, ignored my body's request to pull free. Then, without warning, like slipping into the blackness of slumber, I became one with the fungal framework that holds together the natural world. I found myself in a timeless existence where the earth was still young, when ancient ferns were making their traditions into modern trees, long before people existed. 
Day and night were no longer limited by time, and I saw it without mankind's self-imposed limitations. However, at that moment, time was very important. I couldn't get lost in the experience of being a timeless being when that being that I was had an important reason for being there to begin with. I urged the fungus on to move ahead quickly to connect with the creature I was chasing, to show me where he'd gone and how to find him. In a flash, I watched the forest root itself into the earth. The trees reached for the sun like endless fingers on the hand of the planet that held them. Then its children, the creatures whose very survival depended on them, began to emerge and diversify, predator and prey balancing one another until I saw what I was looking for. Stop, I begged it. What's that? And so it did. Time went at a pace I was used to, but felt far slower after coming out of a compressed history lesson. A corpse of an early deer lay rotted on the forest floor. All is still. The leaves didn't shudder because the breeze didn't blow. No animals moved about. It is almost as if I'm looking at a picture, a snapshot claiming this moment for its own, and I'm as uncomfortable as I've ever been. I know instinctively that I don't belong here and what I'm seeing, or being shown more succinctly, is not for my eyes. Just when I can take the stillness no longer, the corpse of the animal jerks. It wasn't a corpse after all. It took a breath, let out a heartbreaking bleat, and the air from its lungs turned into a faint cloud above it. It jerks again, this time convulsing so hard that half its body lifts from the ground, and then it settles. The rise and fall of its chest is almost done now. Its suffering is almost over, and I cannot look away because it's not my eyes that are looking. I'm being shown what the mycelium wishes to show me to answer the question I've asked it. The deer's breath becomes shallower. They become slower, slower, even slower, and then stop altogether, and all is still once more. The death goes unnoticed, already forgotten by the world above the ground, but I feel it in a way that I never have, through the mycelium. It is hurt in its own way by the loss, yet excited as I understand the sensation through it by the promise of the nutrients it will soon partake in. Then the body jerks once again, and though it goes still once more, a sound begins to carry from it. It was a grinding sound, like the pushing of flesh through the mechanical teeth of a sausage maker. The occasional pop, maybe a bone breaking or snapping. The little deer's corpse rippled as something moved beneath its hide, pressing against it, sharp points exploring the underside of the soft fur. Then the flesh gave way, tore open, blood spurting and trickling into the thirsty ground, and I can taste it through the senses of the mycelium, my guide here. But it did not taste as blood tastes to the human mouth. It tasted as color, as warmth. It tasted like waves of light peppered with the deer's youth and sorrow. I'm sorry, but it's so hard to explain through language what cannot be understood by our senses. Then from inside the deer, a small creature crawled its way out. It had a horrifyingly large mouth for its small head with teeth too big for it, like a puppy's paws. It would need to grow into them. It was hard to tell what color the fur was. At that moment, it was weighed down with blood, black and deep, glinting only a hint of red when the sun's light dared to touch it. Long, gangly legs with hooked claws stepped out of the corpse and onto the ground, unsteady but only for a moment. It looked around, head low, overwhelmed as if considering this new world that it had just come into. It shivered, cold and scared. 
I realized at that moment that this was the first Ravinia, the birth of a species. Where it had come from I can't say, but it wasn't from here after all. Perhaps it's a refugee from a world we can't see. Perhaps it's evolution of something that came from somewhere else. I found myself pitying this predator who would surely love nothing more than to show my innards to the sun, but that is the burden of being a human, isn't it? To care for what's incapable of caring back. The small, horrifying, yet somehow adorable creature rushed off into the brush, finding shelter in the overgrowth of thorny vines. It moved to an outcropping of rock and stopped, sniffing or examining the space between the stones. It rubbed its head against the growth of moss and then disappeared into the shadows of a large void between them. A moment later, a few foxes scurried out in a panic. This was it. This is what the mycelium wanted to show me, after all. The answer to my question of where the creature would be. It's in a cave. I forcefully pushed the consciousness of the mycelium from my mind and body. In an instant, I was looking out through my own eyes once more and began to pull and pluck the webbing from my body. I stood, rushed to my clothes, and put them back over my body. I ran down the trail, wincing as the branches and leaves whipped against my arms and face. I followed the patches of yellow and red mushrooms wherever they emerged. I passed through a muddy slick spot on the ground and into a cloud of stink, a smell so potent that I lost my footing and choked on it. It was the smell of rot, of decay. I covered my nose and mouth and begged my stomach not to betray me and vomit, and looked for the source of the stench, and I found I was standing in it. I looked down at my feet into the rotting flesh of a large deer. It was empty, milky eyes looking up at me and I quickly stepped out of the corpse. It was bloated and oozing. As sick as the sight and smell of the deceased deer made me, there was an excitement above it. I only hoped that the corpse wasn't too far gone. I held my breath, pulled the hide off the ground which had already started to be claimed by it, and I shook off the dirt and bugs and heaved the corpse over my shoulder. I ran and stumbled through the path, guided by the mushrooms, the mycelium, bringing me to where I had to go, until I arrived at the mouth of the cave. Time had changed it. The brush around it thicker, the moss engulfing all the stones that poked from the dirt and roots of the land around it. Still, it was clearly used as evident from the worn ground going inside. Inside. It suddenly occurred to me that I would need to enter this hole in the earth to find what I was after, and dreaded both being successful or failing only to have what I needed to find find me in its home. Sometimes there are only bad options, but one must face them just the same. The inside of the cave was cold, damp, as any good cave is. I took a breath, took a step. I moved deeper into the belly of the earth and away from the light of the surface, all while dragging the heavy corpse. And if I'm honest, I stopped to vomit a few times, but carried on. Gradually, I'd gone deep enough, twisted and turned enough times where I could not see the entrance behind me or the path before me. I was in limbo. I reached out but felt no solid walls. I stomped my foot but felt no solid ground. I'd arrived, between here and there, this and that. The line of division that we understood and what we fear. As my hand groped for anything to give me a sense of solid existence, it sunk into something soft and warm. My ears had heard a growling and my hand felt the vibration that carried through my fingertips and turned into a shiver that ran down my back. It was there, in front of me. I couldn't see anything except darkness, but the darkness is what it was made of after all. In a sense, I was truly seeing it as it was and not as my eyes would have me believe. 
I felt a vibration in my pocket that startled me so badly it almost pushed the soul out through my screaming throat. The light of my cell phone screen shone through the inside breast pocket of my coat. It illuminated just what was in front of me, and what was in front of me was enough to turn a saint into a stone. The Ravinia's eyes reflected the light as two single dots floating in infinity, like stars in the sky, on moving and fixed. Its teeth were slick with saliva, its claws coated with dew from the cave's atmosphere. I reached into my pocket slowly, my fingers sticky with blood and the fluids of decay. I pulled my phone out and answered it. I felt my voice shaking as I said hello to my wife, heard the fear in the single word I was able to utter. There was a pause that felt like forever. It was a silence filled by my panicked breathing and the Rivian's gurgling that remained for a moment before my wife said, Will this be our final goodbye? Well, at the moment, I believe it might be, I said. Do you need something? I was looking for the jam I canned last summer, she said, but now it seems a bit trivial considering... Oh, I moved that batch to the root cellar outside the south wing, I remember. She said she'd look and then said, well, I won't keep you from your faith. But Hanson, if you'd be so good to come home tomorrow, we'd all love to see you alive once more. If I can, I will, I said, and I gave her my love and she gave me hers and I hung up, returning the phone to its cradle in my pocket. The dark came back as the screen turned off, and you might think that's worse, but there's a reason a blindfolded man is calm in front of a firing squad. Sometimes it's only reasonable way to face one's fate. Come on then, I said to the oblivion all around me, and no sooner did the words leave my mouth than something hit me so hard that my ears rang and my teeth felt like they were loose in my jaw. I was on the ground, felt the hard, pointy rocks of it poking into my flesh. I scrambled for the deer hide, my hands only managed to find fistfuls of mud and I tasted the blood in my own mouth and found the soft, wet flesh of the pelt in my grasp. The hot breath of the Ravinia enveloped me and for a moment I could not smell the stench of the deer over the death coming from its mouth. I pulled the deer open like a blanket, thrust myself forward and hugged the monster in the dark. It clawed at me, cutting my clothes and flesh but I'd managed to cover the worst of it, its mouth. I was taken off my feet as it thrashed about, but I held on, moving the deer further and further over it as it struggled. I felt the creature shrink in my grip, being pulled through the wall between life and death, this place and that place, and told it to go home through gritted teeth. Almost all at once, I was on the ground and still. The deer's flesh beneath me, but nothing between it and the mud. The Ravinia was gone now, back to where it should be, where it came from. This one, at least. I felt the warm trickle of blood tickle my chest and drip down my arms inside my shirt. I had no idea how badly I was hurt, only that my collection of scars had just grown exponentially. I rolled onto my back, my eyes adjusted, and I can see the light that entered through the mouth of the cave was dancing on the water on the walls. The mycelium formed delicate pass between the rock. I took out my phone, texted a smiley face to my wife and then pushed myself off the ground and began to limp and stumble my way out of the cave, very much eager to start my trip home. Did you enjoy this tale? Who? Me? Who are you talking to? No, the listener. What are you talking to them for? The story's done, they've gone on, haven't they? Well, maybe not. Maybe they'll listen to us little grivels for a bit. Mr. Oak ain't the only one with a story to share. I have things to say. 
What things? Like maybe if they enjoyed themselves, they should subscribe or follow or leave a review. Don't be telling them what to do. I'm not. It's not polite ordering those poor folks to do things, especially since they ain't here for you. They came for Mr. Oak, didn't they? Well, how do you know they ain't come for us? Because they don't even know who we are. All I'm saying is it's good manners to subscribe or follow or leave a review, isn't it? Is this recording? Did you hit the button? Oh, I thought you hit the button. Oh dear, Mr. Oak won't be happy.